You can grab your Bibles if you can or open them if it's on your cell phone or, you know, it's a different era, isn't it? Yeah. We are in Acts chapter 12 this morning, verse 1, as we work our th- way through the Bible, verse by verse. Acts 12, 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to arrest some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize, seize Peter also. And that was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads or quadrants, 16 soldiers, to keep him, little overkill, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now before, behold, excuse me, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. So he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that it was done by the angel, that it was real but thought it was seeing a vision. He thought he was dreaming. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, and many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, left him standing outside, ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. You're you're out of your mind. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said it must be his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak through these words that you send your spirit to teach us that we might be changed, that we might leave this place differently than the way we came in. We ask that in Jesus' name and all of God's people agreed by saying... Amen. You may be seated, please. God opens prisons and 
prayer changes things. Well, this is a very difficult chapter. It doesn't look like it at first, but um, it is about prayer changing things. The people who don't have faith find out God is faithful, and yet those who claim to have faith really didn't. Um, Two apostles are arrested, and uh, James, one of the sons of thunder, his brother John, and Peter, the three of them were part of an inner group of apostles. We assume Jesus poured more time into them because he saw possibilities for them. He knew what they were going to eventually do. But that just leads to a dilemma. So Peter is arrested, but James is killed. Why? I I don't know the answer to that. But it is part of every one of our lives. Every one of us have had someone taken who we looked at and said, Lord, why did that happen? And then you'd look at other people who seemed so much more worthy of an early death. (laughs) But God didn't work that out. And for the people who are struggling watching a loved one say, pass, it creates a dilemma in our hearts. If God really loves us, if God is a God of love, I hear this all the time. When we were in Israel a few weeks ago, uh, a Jewish atheist walked up to me. He was, uh, which is the whole thing, is that's a mind blower to me. Uh, but we were uh, there with a bunch of pastors and he knew it and he came up and he, I don't know why he picked me, but he walked up and he, <clears throat> he said, uh, I said, can I pray for you? He said, I don't believe in God. I said, that's okay. He said, um, why would God allow this horrible thing to happen to his people? And he said, his people sarcastically. And so we talked about eternity and um, all these things will be settled eventually. Sometimes in this life, we go through things that we don't understand. In fact, I would say often, (laughs) we go through difficult storms and trials and struggles in life. But what do we do with them? This man thanked us for coming to Israel and then left. He wasn't interested in the good news that it was God's love that put his son on a cross to die for us. Difficulties, we all have faced them. Prayer is the main theme of this chapter. Prayer changes things. It doesn't just change the people who are praying. James, the book of James says, you have not because you've asked not. That's a pretty bold statement. How much is given to those who ask? More is given to those who ask Jesus. How much more of the Holy Spirit will be given to those that ask? Now, that creates a lot of dilemma for theologians, not for me, but uh, I see God as interacting with his people, with us every day. Oswald Chambers said, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it 
to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do. But God wants us to pray before we do anything else at all. So that's the overriding lesson in this chapter. There's uh, three sections, prayer offered in verse 1 through 5, prayer answered, 6 through 11, and then the doubters, and the answer is doubted, 12 through 17. That's where we're going, fasten your seatbelts, and uh, we'll see what the Holy Spirit might teach us all. Now, about the time Herod the king stretched out his hand to arrest some of the church. Herod is, this one is the grandson of Herod the Great. We're all a little confused when we read through the New Testament because there's at least three Herods. Some expositors say there's five of them. But the first one, Herod the Great, was the one that did all the building of the temple and and uh, Masada and various places that are still standing. Well, not the temple, but Masada is still standing today. So uh, he was called great by himself. He gave himself that title, uh, which always makes you a little bit suspicious. Uh, I'm great. <clears throat> there might be a problem there. Uh, this Herod is actually the grandson of Herod the Great. And it helps to have a little bit of background so we understand why he's so strange. Herod the Great was the one that killed all the babies in Bethlehem. And this is his grandson who was raised in Rome because the family was afraid that he would be killed by Herod. Herod was so paranoid about someone coming and taking away his kingship. Um, we'll find again there's another Herod, Herod Antipas, uh, the second when we get to chapter 22 and 23. But anyway, we don't want to go through all the history of all that. So in uh, this Acts 12 is Herod, officially Herod Agrippa I. Um, he was a politician, politician, a smooth talker. Nothing's changed in the world. Uh, he was also half, half Jew and uh, tried to please the Jews so they would support his kingship. Josephus records that he made daily sacrifices at the temple and very lavish ones so everyone would know how holy he was. Hmm. Verse 2. And then he killed James, the brother of John. The sons of thunder, you'll remember. The story, they go into a Samaritan village to find a place for Jesus and the rest of the disciples to stay, but the Samaritans didn't want them to come in, and they went back and said to Jesus, you know, these Samaritans are very disrespectful. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Which I've been tempted to do on the freeway a few times, but... So far, God hasn't answered that prayer for me. Um, so these are the sons of thunder and lightning. They've got a lot to say. But they were part of this inner three. It was them, James and John and Peter, that went into Jairus' daughter's house. Uh, you might remember in Luke chapter 5. Um, it was uh, them who uh, began to... Uh, go in when no one else could, and Jesus raised a little girl from the dead when they went to the Mount of Transfiguration. Only three apostles went up, Peter, James, and John. And uh, 
James's mother was the one that came to Jesus and said, uh, you know, my boys, they're good. Uh, when you come into your kingdom, would you make one of them sit on your right hand and the other on the left hand of your throne? And so uh, they were in this particular position that they looked like they were destined for great things. But suddenly it says, James is killed with the sword. That's significant, the mission of the Jewish commentary on the Bible said that the sword was to be used on any heretics, anyone who left the faith of Israel and became something else. So there was a statement here. He's martyred because of him accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. Why is one of these inner three, part of the 12 apostles, why is one of them killed? And the second one we're about to read is miraculously saved. It's a difficult question. It's a dilemma. Why does God save one and not another? I actually get asked that question quite often from some of you. It usually happens about the time of a funeral. And I understand the heart of the question. I've had the question many times in my own walk. And I have to go back to the love of God. It was the love of God that put his son on the cross to die for my sins. It's the love of God that's displayed to the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever would believe on him should have eternal life. So when we get to those difficult questions, how do we respond? Isaiah 55 is part of the answer. God speaking says, you do not know because you do not understand. My ways are higher than your ways. My ways are beyond you finding out. Is God being selfish when he says that? I don't think so. I think he's talking about horsepower. We don't have enough brains to understand all the things that go into that kind of a decision with God. So we're stuck with, we're not going to understand this side of heaven. When we see him, Paul the Apostle writes, we will understand and we will be understood as we are understood. So I think what happens when we come to heaven, when we stand before Jesus, I'm going to say, because I have all these questions, right? In a folder. <laughs> I keep them. And I'm going to go, and then all of a sudden this is going to hit me. I'm going to go, oh, I'm such an idiot, Lord. Forgive me. I couldn't see all that. I can't see all the things you can see in the future. If things weren't the way you made them, what would have happened? I don't think that's a complete answer. I think you're forced to go to the cross. You stop at the bottom of the cross and you look up and you say, I don't understand everything, Lord, but I understand that it's love that puts you on the cross for my sins. So embrace that. In fact, you know, probably in the crowd this size, some of you are right in the middle of that right now. Trust. Trust 
accept, believe, cling to, rely on. Where we don't really need to understand, the answer is frustrating, but often when I pray, I get the answer, wait. Hmm. His character is unblemished. Trust it. Verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, Herod sees that the Jews are happy that James was killed. He proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. That, that's an eight-day festival feast that goes on, and uh, it's part of Passover. So probably there's at least three reasons for the delay in executing Peter. Number one, Herod wanted to show to all the Jewish folks in town in Jerusalem that he observed the Passover, even though he was such an obvious sinner. Number two, a lot of people like to think others think them as being holy. He was fearing a riot. He didn't want to do it because there was a pilgrim crowd, and when they went home, then he could do whatever he wanted. And probably thirdly, he waited until he had full attention of the Jewish leadership. So, would you mind turning the mic off just a second? I think there's a loose connection here. That either killed the mic or fixed it, we'll see. Verse 4. So when he had apprehended Peter, put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of prisoners to keep him. Four quatrons, it says, 16 soldiers for one fisherman, really, from Galilee? Why? Well, last time Peter was put in jail, you'll remember, he had healed a man that couldn't walk on the Temple Mount that they, uh, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin, the high court, the high court, threw him in prison, and then that night, an angel came and let him out. And uh, they didn't want that to happen again. You know, every time we put this guy in prison, the next thing you know, he's walking the streets the next day and preaching the Temple Mount. So, um, and after the Passover, he waits, going through the motions, actually. Unleavened bread, you remember, the Passover was a, a Jewish festival that required you to go through your house and Get all the dust out. Get all the leaven out. Because you remember, leaven is yeast, and yeast causes bread to puff up. You know, the little yeasty beasties uh, chew up all the glucose, and they let off CO2, and it puffs up, and nobody likes prideful bread. And so um, that's the, the mindset that they were in. The Jewish people, when they fled from Egypt, they didn't have time for their bread to rise, so they ate unleavened bread, which is like pita bread or something to us. And so that was the remembrance during this Passover feast, eight days, uh, and the last one being Passover. So it's ironic, of course, that they're trying to be removing sin from their house with religious things when in fact they're getting ready to murder Peter. Hmm. Sometimes religion is a little hypocritical. Verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison. The constant prayer was offered. Constant prayer was offered. Now, we remember that this 
historical record, the scriptural record, was written by a man named Luke. And he, by profession, was a physician. And so Dr. Luke uses medical terms throughout the Bible. And we won't take the time to look at it, but this is one. When it says uh, it was constant prayer, it literally says it was reaching out prayer. Extend, E-X-T-E-N-O-S in the Greek language. Stretching prayer. He was stretching out. They were reaching out to God with their hearts, saying, Lord, please don't let Peter get killed. Earnest prayer has power, not because in itself it persuades a reluctant God. God is ready, but it demonstrates that our hearts care passionately about the things that our Father cares about. It changes us, and it changes circumstances. John 15, 7, Jesus said, if you, abide me, if you abide in me, stay in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. When I was a brand new Christian, I remember someone taught, whenever you think about prayer, think about the word push, P-U-S-H. Prayer or pray until something happens. P-U-S-H. I think that's still important today for you, for me. When you start praying about something, you rather throw your hands up when it doesn't happen 10 minutes later. When you don't get the desired result, oh, I'm just like you. I, I have the same problem. Pray until something happens. great uh, studies that are going on right now about prayer from a scientific standpoint. Does praying really matter? Does prayer change things? Well, it has been going on for a long time. Scientists trying to do studies that are designed in such a way whether or not a group of people praying for a patient in a hospital is actually changed by the prayers or not. This is an article written by Dr. Frank Fincham, director of the Family Medical Center at uh, Florida State University, published uh, last November. What can science say about the study of prayer? The scientific study of the effectiveness of prayer has been going on for at least 150 years, starting back with the work of a British physician, Francis Galton, back in the 1870s. In the last 25 years, there have been more than 191 American scientific studies asking that question, all published in peer-reviewed journals. For you scientists, you'll know that those are double-blind studies that are reviewed by people who are scientists like you, and they say, okay, this article is worth publishing. So, uh, the Templeton Prayer Study came to the conclusion, petitioning gods for others, quote, the studies have showed that intercessory prayer for the well-being of loved ones improves the patient's myocardial functions, heart, oxygenization, you know, you put that little thing on our tips now that gives us the PO2, and partial pressure of oxygen, 
uh, and cardiac output, the amount your heart is able to evacuate. So that, of course, makes atheists really unhappy, and I'm sure we'll see a new study uh, this coming year by an atheist proving that it's not so in the study we did. This is more than a 1,000 patients that they've been following. Prayer changes things. Keep those cards and letters coming. I can handle it. Verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter, that night Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards, the other 14, before the door were keeping the prison. Great picture here of Peter. Peter uh, is going to die the next day. He knew it. But this is the one thing that Peter does well, sleep. In the Garden of Gethsemane, everyone's praying with Jesus and Peter is sound asleep. He wakes up in the middle of it and then pulls out his sword and cuts off the, a body part of, of one of the people that had come in. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter fell asleep. And all of a sudden, he, he woke up and he sees Jesus glorified and, and he's with Moses and Elijah. He says, this is a good thing, Lord. Let's build three tents. We'll just live here. <laughs> and then Father God speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son, Peter. He didn't say that, but that was the point. Hear him. This is the son of God. Pay attention. So here, Peter is resting. He's in grace. He knew God would do what he was going to do anyway. Seven. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him by him, and light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side. Now, that wasn't a tap, okay? The Greek word is smote. <laughs> so Peter was like my bulldog. He sleeps really, really good. And everybody knows he's sleeping in the room. He strikes Peter on the side and raised him up. I don't know what that means. I know what it says. <laughs> Arise quickly. And his chains fell off, you know, off his hands. So when the angel said to him, gird yourself, then tie on your sandals, it's like talking to your five-year-old trying to get him ready for, <laughs> for kindergarten or something. Put on your sandals. No, you got your feet on backwards. Put the other shoe on the other foot. And he didn't. Then he said, now put on your garment. Put on your coat. We're going outside and follow me. Why are angels always in a hurry when they are in the Bible? I don't know the answer to that either. But I have a suspicion. I think heaven is so amazing. When they get down here, they go, oh my goodness, what a dump. <laughs> and they're, you know, they need to do a certain thing that God told them to do, so they do it. And the next thing you know, they're trying to get out. They're trying to leave, trying to go back. Actually, that's a great encouragement. It should be to you and I. Heaven is so much better than this. They want to leave. Why are we all trying to stay here? Hmm. Might be better to look at heaven as something that's positive. In fact, so good, as Paul wrote, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, 
nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for us who love him. You cannot imagine, that's what Paul said. Think about the most amazing mansion. Jesus has been working on yours for 2,000 years. I go to heaven to prepare a place for you, Keith Green said. He's been working on a great place for you. Don't spend so much time on your house painting and all that stuff. One in heaven is going to make this look like a dump. So angels are in a hurry. They need to get back quickly. So you want to get back. Verse 9. So he went out and he followed him. Follows the angel. Did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was in a dream. And when they were past the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city. They were evidently in this home. We'll read about it in just a second. And they get to this iron gate that leads to just the streets of the city. They're leaving this compound that they were in. And uh, it appeared to them and opened of its own court. (laughs) Uh, That was before electronic gates were uh, powered. And they went out, but went down one street, and immediately the angel departs, hey, I'm out of here. I'm going back to heaven. You stay here. And Peter, when he had come to himself, I love the English language, isn't that a great phrase? Who else did he, could have come to? Okay, so he came to himself, and he said, now, I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod. He could have said again, because this is the second time he's been released from prison, and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. They were all looking for to me dying. So there's an opportunity here. Peter has. So does he run to the hills to play it safe? Or does he do what God would want him to do? Serve him. And we'll see, of course, as we travel through the book of Acts. He takes the dangerous route. Attempt something with your own life so great that unless God intervenes, it's doomed to failure. Take risks to serve the Lord. We're only here once. And we don't have a lot of time. A few years Don't get caught up in trying to collect things of this earth. All this stuff is passing away. I love the old story about the guy that hoarded all this gold and and, uh, he prayed and said, Lord, please let me take this to heaven. And he dies and he goes to the front gate and and Peter says, you can't come in with that bag. And he says, oh, no, God said I could come in. He said, let me see that bag. And he opens it up, and he looks at all this gold, and he says, you brought asphalt to heaven? The streets are paved with what we think is so important here. So press on. The evening news isn't that good anyway. 
<laughs> you know, you're not missing anything. Minister, don't use your life. Serve others. A.C. Dodson said, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit, we get what God can do with our lives. Go do it. Verse 12. And so when he had considered this, Peter, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now, as we get deeper into the book of Acts, we'll realize that this is John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and he will travel with Peter, and he will pat, uh, uh, also be a missionary with Paul and with Barnabas. He's a young man. Uh, early church historians say he was the young man that ran from the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, but he's living at home with his mom. And early church historians um, said it was a place we're familiar with. Verse 13, as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda, Rosie, <laughs> comes to, the, to answer the door. And we're told that this is the place where the Last Supper took place, as well as Pentecost. And if you've been to Israel with this, that's the room. Now, the roof was destroyed in the Middle Ages. It's been rebuilt, so it probably didn't look exactly like that. But whenever we go to Israel, we stop in there, and there's usually other church groups that have come from other places in the world. And we sing a song. And so that's where Peter the home that he's going to on the outside of it. Uh, it's on the second story, of course, where one of those people from our church are standing. That was a patio, and there was evidently this gate there. And so Peter goes to the same place where he was very familiar with by this time, and uh, this young lady comes out, verse 14. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of, because of her joy, she just vivacious gal. She did not open the gate. This is so exciting. Peter is here. And she ran in and announced that Peter was outside the gate. Now, Peter's got a price on his head, right? And the last thing he wants to do is be standing around in the city of Jerusalem when Herod's looking for him. He's already left. So, uh, be ready for any opportunity My wife is here, <laughs> so I have to be careful what I say in so many ways. But I also want to tell you about, I walked past the bedroom the other day, and back to this yesterday. She was talking to a young lady that she had met in a restaurant. We were downtown, Martha Green's, you probably all know the place. That was not a commercial for the place. And it was so full, we were sitting, and we came in and sat down. And a couple came in. And uh, I'll just say they were rather worldly looking. Um, they had F-bomb t-shirts on. 
and, uh, but it was about cancer. But the guy had a little sticker on his T-shirt that was from Redlands Community Hospital. And Redlands says to the woman, the wife, and says, uh, oh, your husband is going through chemotherapy at Redlands. She said, how did you know that? She said, well, I was there <laughs> this morning. And uh, I said, really? And they started talking. And they said, will you guys have lunch with us? I said, okay. (laughs) And we sat down at a table, and I'm trying to help you see, even in the midst of the things that are going on in this lady's life, she makes me look bad. She's wanting to eat with people with graphic T-shirts on. And, of course, we run into people from the church in there, and they look at us and look at the people we're with, and they're body piercings and tattoos and t-shirts and uh, <laughs> and I'm sure there's rumor going around town that we, you know, anyway uh, but we have lunch together, we're there for three hours this woman is a better teacher than I am and she spent three hours ministering to this woman so when I was coming to church last night. I walked by the, and she's on the phone with this gal. They're like best friends, and they only met each other a day earlier. And she's witnessing to her, and she's praying with this gal. With that T-shirt on, really, you can't pray with that T-shirt. I God won't hear your prayers with those kind of T-shirts on. <laughs> and you've heard me say, anyone should be welcome in a church. Anybody. In fact, we want you to come. And, and, and don't embarrass them by saying, wow, that's a lot of tattoos, dude. Or, you know, or something that would make them feel uncomfortable. And I know most of you, you, you don't do that. You do just the opposite. I watched an older guy walk up and hug a guy that was all full of tattoos, and he didn't know him. He said, welcome. <laughs> Please do that. Verse 17. So he, he comes, oh, I'm sorry, I missed 16, didn't I? 15. Back up. And they said to her, uh, when she said, uh, it's Peter outside, he said, you're, you're beside yourself. You're out of your mind. <laughs> Yet she kept insisting that it was so. And so they said, it's this angel. There was a Jewish superstition that we have a guardian angel that looks just like us. And it it is just a superstition. I grew up in a church that tossed that too. Um, But uh, they finally opened the door. They don't believe it possible that Peter can be there. Wait a minute. We just read a couple of verses back that they're reaching out with prayer, with believing prayer. But when they seem, they don't believe it. Ever been in that position? You pray for something, and then, and, but you don't think it's going to happen. Maybe you even forgot you prayed about it, and then it happens. You go, wow, I should pray more often. <laughs> this is working. Motioning to them with his hand to keep quiet, verse 17, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these people, 
tell, excuse me, go tell these things to James uh, and to the brethren. Uh, don't be confused. This is a different James than the James that was killed by the sword in the first verse, in the first three verses. This is James that Tertullian, one of the early church historians, tells us was the brother of Jesus with a different father, obviously, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Father God. Um, and, uh, and, and he's the one who becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem. And he departed and went to another place. Peter is gone. In a world of broken promises, in broken and wounded hearts, that comes from just living out our lives here on planet Earth, there is one thing that remains true to our hearts, only one. God's love never fails. It never runs out. He never gives up on us. We find ourselves in self-made prisons in this life. I talk to people often, a whole crowd of people last night after the service, struggling with prisons that they've been living in, some of them for decades. So I have an illustration for that. We'll close with this. Most of us have heard the name of, of Harry Houdini. Houdini was the, the artist who was able to get out of uh, all different kinds of difficult situations. It was actually a sideshow originally, and, uh, but he went on to become rather world famous. He had one particular thing that he challenged all over the world. He said, you put me in your best prison cell and I'll get out in under two hours. And that was his brag. But he was able to do it all over the world. He would get, be put in prison and uh, there he is. And, uh, and then he would get out. So in upstate New York, and uh, just really a year before he died of appendicitis, so a terrible way to go, he, um, he, he, Albany had built a brand new prison. They had asked him to come and, and prove that he could get out. So they put him in, they locked it, and, uh, and then everybody stood outside and watched. And there were photographs of it, as you can see. And uh, so he reaches inside his belt, and he pulls out a little tiny piece of spring steel. And he goes over and, and gets all the chains off and then goes to open the lock on the jail door. And it doesn't work. And uh, he, he can't get it. And he starts to sweat. And he's watching his watch. And he's trying everything. He was a locksmith. <laughs> and, he, and he knew every lock manufacturer in the world. But this lock wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. And he's sweating. And after an hour, sweat is running down his face. And, and he continues. That and, he's, and he's huffing and he's puffing. That's a dejected man. And he leans against it, and he's pushing, he's pushing. And finally, at two hours, a minute before, he gives up. And he falls forward. And his head pushes on the gate, and it opens. It had never been locked. They forgot to lock it. I think that's a picture for all of us. So many of us have either self-made prisons. We got mad at God for something in our lives. 
and we refuse to let it go. God's love never fails. And he's waiting for us to simply lean against him and say, Lord, forgive me. Take my life again. I surrender. Would you stand, please, and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have uh, given to us this great ability to choose and uh, that most of us in this room have wisely chosen to surrender our lives to you, to dedicate to you our lives so that we might be a service in your kingdom. And we thank you for that, Lord. But we pray for any that might be here this morning that have not surrendered to you and ask that you speak to them right now and change them. Believers, please pray. I wonder if there's someone here this morning, maybe more than one, but you've never asked God to forgive your sins. Oh, you did it a long time ago. And then some storm in life, some wave came crashing over you and knocked you off your course. And you got angry with God why he would allow such a thing to happen to you. This moment is for you. We wouldn't do anything to embarrass you. But if you'd like to surrender your life, ask God to give you back peace that passes understanding. This is your chance. If you'd like to do that, would you let me know you're ready to do that by looking up at me and raising my hand in your hands. Thank you. God bless you. And, and then we're going to pray in just a minute. And I'm going to pray for all of you too. Yes, two of you there. God bless you. couple. God bless you. You, sir? Yes. Young lady in front of me. God bless you. If I miss your hand, don't worry. God didn't. Those of you that raise your hands just to make sure we're going to ask God to forgive our sins and take our lives, and we'll do it with you to make it easy. So everybody, please say out loud, Lord Jesus, I surrender. I give you my life. Please forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can serve you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, I pray. Those of you that did that for the first time, we'd encourage you to go over to these double doors to my right. Some of our elders are there. We'd love to give you a Bible and pray for you. If you have a prison door that's not letting go, please go there and get some prayer or come forward and talk to me.